Dotnet Rocks episode 834, recorded live Friday, December 21st, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. We're geeking out again. It's a new year, so we should lead off with a geek out, huh? Absolutely. We've been talking about doing the nuclear show for a long time. There's a lot to cover. So yep. I guess we'll... Ju- I just want to ask a question. And this is the sure. question that's on everybody's mind. Is nuclear power safer than everybody thinks it is? Or than the naysayers think it is? Yeah, yes and no. Of course, if it was a clear answer, it would be fine. There absolutely are problems with nuclear power. And some of them come from the industry. I think as we go through the history of this, you'll see in the end, the business of generating electricity has its own set of motivations. And many Mm -hmm. of them have not a lot to do with safety. And at the same time, uh, you are playing with radioactives, which are challenging things to play with. They're uh, good parts and bad parts of this. But there is no form of power generation that does not have consequences. Right. No form. You know, whether it's the rare earth metals you need to use in solar cells or the birds killed by windmills or the toxic plume over a coal power plant or the destruction of habitat and terrain from a a, 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 a dam. Mm. Everything has consequences. And uh, nuclear power has its own. And some of them are exacerbated by weird things. Like? Um, like the START treaties. You know, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but when one of the by, you know, one of the byproducts of the nuclear power industry was that it really grew out of the need to make nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Yeah. And when we had non-proliferation treaties put into place, we stopped reprocessing fuel and created a larger nuclear waste problem for ourselves. Do you think a lot of the problems that have happened with nuclear power plants, um, Fukushima comes to mind, Three Mile Island comes to mind. Um, do you think that these were because they're the the plants are outdated? We haven't built any in a long time. No, um, at the time they weren't, and many of them have been maintained. But people take shortcuts and make mistakes. But we're still we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because you, right. you really have to understand the physics of of nuclear fission to understand what the problems are. All right, let's go through it. All right, so we're talking about a very weird. non-natural process. Nuclear reactions or fission is not something that happens very often in nature Mm. uh, because things tend to be stable. The atoms like to stay together. Yeah, and they like to hang out. And we, you know, let's pull out a little, pull out our, you know, our, our, our science 12 hat and talk about mm. the atomic model again, cause this matters. So let's, right. we're going to pick on uranium 238. Okay. Cause 238 is sort of the center of all of this, right? Mm-hmm. And uranium 238 made up of 92 protons and 146 neutrons. That's a lot for a total, a total weight of 238, right? Mm-hmm. That's where the number comes from. Yep. And then there's a bunch of, uh, there's 92 electrons typically in a stable uranium 238 and 238 being the, the stable common isotope of uranium. This is the one you find in nature. Okay. Now, 
two terms I'm going to use here. Fissionable and fissile. Okay. Okay. Fissionable means you can do fission with it. And fissile is it it's wants to do fission. It's actually naturally doing that. So the whole concept here is this. We're playing with neutrons. So any heavy particle up to in a, in a certain weight range tends to have neutron decay or what they call beta decay. It mm-hmm. loses neutrons every so often. And when it does, its atomic weight goes down. When you say every so often, what do you really mean? Completely depends on the different isotope. This can huh. be once a second, once a year, once every thousand years. Huh. You know, some of these atoms, talk, uh, we talk in half-lifes of billions of years. And when you say right? isotope, just define that for us again. And then isotope, so when we, there are isotopes, isomers, there's all kinds of different variations, but the isotope, we're just going to stick with that, is that the same number of protons. So uranium has a number of different isotopes. They all have 92 protons in them, Mm -hmm. but they have a different number of electrons. Okay. So an important uranium isotope when it comes to nuclear reactions is uranium 235. I get it. So, so the isotope is the, the brand of, of the, of the metal itself. In other words, right. the particular number, it's particular all the number. same, it's the same atom, right? Yep. It's all uranium, but it has different number of electrons. Got it. And, and you will find in a, in a given amount of uranium, most of it will be 238, some of it will be 236, some of it 232, 235, 233, and these are all, they are any, any number of, ele- of neutrons missing. And, and notice that the stable one, is the heavy one, 238. And it's because they lose neutrons, as you say. Or the neutrons get knocked off of it. Yeah. For whatever reason. Okay. So the essence of fission, right? What fission's all about is that an extra neutron arrives onto a a uranium atom. So say we take, we're going to go to a fissile version of uranium, 235, which represents three quarters of a percent of typical... Uh, amount of uranium, three quarters percent of it would be 235. When an extra neutron arrives on uranium 235, which makes it effectively uranium 236, mm-hmm. it destabilizes it. It makes it unstable. And in some cases, it will actually split it apart into two separate, uh, uh, something that's not uranium at all. It'll split into two different clashes. It can be cesium and iodine. There's any number, there's a bunch of different combinations depending on the energy involved when it's split. Okay. Which is amazing when you think about it. You remember that whole idea of, you know, turning lead into gold, the, the mm-hmm. alchemist dream? Sure. Well, we can actually do that when we smash atoms apart and we change the number of protons and electrons and, and neutrons in them. You, you're literally making other things. And that is a byproduct of fission. Mm. But it's not something you, when you're trying to make electricity, you want to do that very carefully. So when we're talking about fission, we talk about sort of a fuel cycle that, we use uranium-235, it takes on a, a neutron, it tends to spit out two neutrons as a side effect, and so you have a K greater than two, and K is sort of the rate of fission. So if your K is less than one, you are subcritical. In other so words, you're, you're losing more reactions. power than you're putting in. That's right. 
I, your ID, if you're making a nuclear power plant, you want a K equal to one for every neutron that gets released, another neutron and hits and gets absorbed by another atom, another one gets released. So you right. run at a steady rate because every time a neutron does that, a certain amount of energy is released. Right. And that energy is quite a bit for a mass. It's the most amount of energy we've ever been able to generate for its mass. Right. Now you can have higher Ks. So if you want to accelerate a reaction, Right. Say you want to warm a nuclear reactor up. You want a K, a K above one so that you actually increase the rate of neutrons traveling around that actually increases the amount of energy you're generating. So a little bit below K, you're cooling things down. A little bit above K, you're cooling things, bringing things up. Get too high and stuff starts to break. Mm. Uh, a nuclear explosion has a very high K. Okay. <laughs> All right. And you got to be careful with that. You don't want to go there. Now, and just to be absolutely clear, for all those wondering, you cannot get a nuclear explosion out of a nuclear reactor. It is impossible. Okay. That won't happen. What is a nuclear explosion anyway? Well, a nuclear explosion is a, is a very high K reaction where we combine fast neutrons. So we collide fission, fissile materials like uranium-235. So you take the simplest nuclear bomb ever made, which was Little Boy, the one they used in Hiroshima, where they literally took a cylinder of uranium-235, which they had spent billions making. And we'll talk about why that's so expensive. And they slammed another piece into it, actually inside of it, another cylinder. And that created a critical, in other words, enough mass that the electrons, the neutrons being released each neutron hitting the uranium-235 made a couple more neutrons and a couple more and a couple more. In fraction of a second, that blew all the, a whole bunch of neutrons off at once and created this massive explosion. I see. But Isn't recognize it, that that explosion was maybe 2 or 3% efficient. Hmm. Most of the fissile material did not explode. Right. What's really interesting here is that you're actually creating neutrons from nothing. Like, where do they well, come from? Well, you're not. The, the neutrons are coming from other new. You're they're knocking other neutrons off, right? In uranium-235, you have uh, 143 neutrons in that atom. So you're slamming another neutron into it, and two more are popping off. You're losing one and gaining two. So where does the other one? Well, they came off. So now oh, the they 235 came becomes 234. Uh, okay, yeah, I see. I see. Okay. I get it. So it is a chain reaction. I get it. Absolutely. And the challenge here is that some atoms are fissionable. So if you hit them with a hot enough neutron energy, you'll get a neutron back out. But it's more than you put in. And some are fissile. 235 is actually fissile in the sense that hit it with one, you're likely to get two or more. Okay. So you're net, you actually have a net positive energy release. Mm. So the challenge of making a nuclear bomb or a nuclear reactor was to f create fissile material. And an interesting little side note on this, most fissile actinides, this class of, of radioactive materials, have odd weights. So plutonium is 239, fissile. Uranium 235, fissile. Right? They have odd numbers. But okay. they are very rare. They don't occur naturally in nature. So the ones so with an even number of neutrons are fissionable, but not fissile? Fissionable. Yeah. Or fertile, yes. They're fissionable. So they don't have the enough. potential of of uh, being f fizzed. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're f the amount of energy required to cause them to fission is greater than the energy they release. Got it. Okay. 
And so you, it's these combinations. Now you don't, when you're trying to do a, a nuclear bomb, you want everything to go very fast. So you use nothing but uranium 235. You want it to go as fast as possible. Boom. And we can do a whole show on nuclear weapons if you want to go down that path because it gets more complex than that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, makers of Kendo UI. Are you a web or mobile developer who wants to build amazing sites and apps? Looking for the best tool out there that can really improve your development work? We've got the answer for you. Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. In the complete integrated package, you'll find a jQuery-based tool set that includes rich UI widgets, a powerful data source, dynamic data visualizations, and blazing fast micro-templates, all backed by industry-leading professional support. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash .net, that's D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 60-day trial with support. Also, tablet show number 19 was an interview with Todd Anglin on the Kendo UI. Richard and I talked to him at length about this great tool set. That's at thetabletshow.com and look for show number 19 in the archives. And when you talk to the Telerik guys, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I know nuclear power and nuclear weapons are related, but um, it all comes down to making the uranium fission uh, fissile, and that's what enriching does, right? And that's what right. is so expensive. So, I mean, in when we talk about weapons-grade uranium or plutonium, we want pure 235, fastest reacting we can get. But when we want fuel for... Uh, nuclear reactors, we want to enrich it. And we enrich that by doing uh, separation. So we, we're going through tons and tons and tons of uranium-238 ore to pull out the less than a 1% fraction that is 235. Because if we increase the amount of 235 in it, we can actually create a sustainable fission reaction. So you're sort of concentrating it. That's right. Yeah. Now, different reactors, what happened along the way, those are the early days. You're talking about the 1950s, what we call Generation 1 reactors, these prototype reactors. And even going back into World War II with the Manhattan Project, they were enriching uranium. They were trying to extract that uranium-235 to make bombs and ultimately to make power uh, power with it as well. And the process is very time-consuming, and, and the net energy generation is low. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But along the way, we learned that certain combinations of radioactives, their natural decay sequence creates more fissionable or fissile material. Hmm. So there's lots of different types of reactors, but one particular interesting kind of reactor in this scenario is a reactor called a breeder reactor. And breeder reactors tend to make fissionable materials as a byproduct. So and rather than spending all this money on all of these centrifuges and this whole gas exchange process to try and extract U-235 or, or plutonium-239, you actually had a particular kind of reactor that combined uh, uranium and different kinds of coatings and metals to actually make the nuclear waste byproduct mm. plutonium. Mm. And so then you could easily extract, you were making more and more and more plutonium by running this reactor. And then you're able to extract that plutonium. And it's, that's where most weapons-grade plutonium has ultimately come from, is breeder reactors. Okay. But as nuclear weapons fell out of favor and, you know, and nuclear treaties came into place, we've shut down those breeder reactors. We've stopped using them. Now, an interesting thing, you know, when we talk about power plants, 
you've had this problem of you have to make fuel, right? So you, you can't just dig the stuff out of the ground and use it. Right. You have to make it into fuel rods, mm-hmm. which takes energy and time, and then you burn them, you run them in, in, in what's called a once-through cycle. So the rods go in, they run a certain amount of times. That can be three months, six months, nine months. They're basically boiling water, mm-hmm. right? You have a primary loop with some kind of moderator, typically water, but there's a few other choices there. But then that primary loop goes through a secondary exchanger to another loop of water, either at boiling temperatures or at steam temperatures, which then turns a turbine. So we're back to steam-powered power. Yep. In the end, we're just boiling water still. doesn't matter whether you boil burn, boil the water using coal, oil, wood, waste, gas. So when you say burn the rods, is that what we're doing? Are we actually splitting the atoms? Yes. Okay. But typical – so the most common type of reactor out there is what's called a light water reactor. Okay. Which is the means – it uses regular good old-fashioned water as opposed to heavy water. Any idea of what the heck heavy water actually well, is? Well, heavy water must be radioactive or have minerals in it or something. I don't know. Heavy water's not radioactive. What it is is it's using a different – it's using hydrogen that has a, a neutron a, a, attached to it. So it's a – so it's water, but it's different than water? Yes. It has a lot of interesting principles. Wow. So we, we get into this because it gets weirder. So, okay. light water reactor is the most common kind of reactor. You you, ra- you irradiate that water, right? You're pouring energy into it, which heats it up. You want to keep that water in a close loop so it's not exposed to anything else. So, that's a sealed loop. That's called the primary loop. That goes through a heat exchanger to, another, to other water, which it then boils, and that secondary loop runs the generator. Oh, okay. Right? So, that way, turbines aren't exposed to any radioactivity and so forth. Not that water actually becomes radioactive. It so, doesn't. So, the closed loop, the radioactive water goes through some sort of pipe that radiates the heat out and boils other clean water that right. runs the That's turbine. That's the heat exchanger. Yeah. You know, the okay. same The same thing is true in my furnace, essentially. Yep. That's how my and I learned this because I had to replace it. But the furnace um, heats uh, water passes it through a pipe into the water heater and, and then through a coil, and that that heats up the water that's potable. Yep. Because you don't want radioactive water uh, spinning a turbine. Right. That just well, gets be, messy. And, and again, the water itself does not become radioactive, but it can be contaminated. Contaminated. Bits of fuel. I guess that's what I meant. That And those things are radioactive. Yeah. When new... But... N- Remember, in the end, what we're doing is we're, we're bombing neutrons around. Now, the right. challenge here is if you just take a bunch of uranium, enriched uranium, and sit it in a heap, it's going to fission up well above K1, right? And so, it'll eventually melt and make a mess. Yeah. And that's not what you want. We want a very controlled reaction. We want to stay as close to K equals 1 as possible. Okay. So, we do a lot of what we call moderation, right? We're moderating the rate that the neutrons fly off that uranium and bounce into other neutrons. Okay. So we clad the rods in a combination of materials. It's a fairly complex process because it actually slows down the rate of the neutrons. Neutrons can pass through it, but they, they slow we can keep some distance between the reactant materials. So the and, space between the rods matters. And generating all of these rods and materials is cheaper than using other forms of energy. Well, that's an excellent question. And yes, because we do generate an awful lot of energy this way. But 
one of the challenges in these different kinds of reactor designs is how much work do you have to do to make the rods? Mm. So one of the problems with light water reactors is that water tends to absorb neutrons. So the hydrogen atoms in water can take on a neutron fairly easily, which makes that hydrogen become deuterium. Deuterium. Yes. So no, a normal hydrogen atom has one proton, one neutron, one electron. Yeah. But if a, when a low energy neutron can collide with hydrogen, it will actually hold on to the two neutrons and it's fairly stable. And it's an element we call deuterium. It mm -hmm. is hydrogen, but it's H2. It has, it has uh, an atomic weight of two. It's yep. heavier. Yep. And if you make water out of that, you make heavy water. Heavy water. And I it's actually it. heavier than regular water. Now, if you make water neutrons. out of it, do you just add an oxygen uh, atom and then mm -hmm. you have H2O, but it's heavy? You, but you'll, no, you'll still have two hydrogen atoms because their valences are still the same. So the way right. that, that um, a molecule is actually made is still going to work the same way. We just have an extra neutron hanging around. Actually, we have two, one for each of the hydrogen atoms. Okay. So it's still okay. H2O. It just has extra neutrons. Yes. It's just heavy water. Got it. Follow me? I, I'm following so, uh, In other reactor designs, recognizing that this is a problem. I don't want those neutrons taken out of the cycle. I actually have to burn the fuel faster to keep the temperature up. Mm -hmm. we, the, you'll see reactor designs like can, the Canadian design called CANDU is Canadian Deuterium Uranium Reactors. And they use heavy water in the primary containment facility. And how do you spell CANDU? C-A-N-D-U. Okay. So by using heavy water, you have uh, you, you fewer uh, neutrons absorbed by the moderating fluid. Okay. So what's the problem with this? Waste. Uh, well, the, the reality is we, we tune this process so precisely, trying to stay at K equals 1, keep everything very stable, that we actually use relatively little of the fuel in the process. Now, this mm. is genuine Einsteinian E equals MC squared. Mm. You put 50 tons of, of uh, fuel rods into reactor, you get out less than 50 tons when you're done burning it. Right now, only by a tiny amount, less than one percent. Really, but that matter has actually been converted into energy. Huh. Okay. That's what. That's what's really happening in a in a fission reaction. It's just that most of the mass is not being burned that way, and because you're trying to maintain that K state very, very carefully, and you the way that this material decays, it quickly falls below criticality, and you lose heat, and it doesn't work anymore, and you have to take those rods out. And then you put a new set of rods well, in. That's the whole once-through reacting system, is that you only get one pass on the rods. I'm stumped here a little bit, and I may have to back up, because sure. when you said, uh, you know, you, you lose, the matter gets converted into energy, doesn't that happen when you burn wood? Doesn't the matter get converted into the energy of heat? Um, a little bit, but far less. And for the most part, it's actually just combined with other things, mm. right? You're really just oxidation gives off heat. The process, it's a chemical reaction, not an atomic reaction. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And the, and the difference is literally four orders of magnitude. Wow. Right? The scale's amazing. You think about it. We, we talk about, you know, high explosives like C4 giving off uh, a, uh, one electron volt per atom. 
where in an atomic reaction, it is 10 mega electron volts per and, you know, like it's The a, energy level is so much higher. It's counterintuitive because you burn a log, you have ounces of ash where there was pounds yeah. of log before, and there was lots and lots of heat. And yep. you're telling me that a rod that gets spent is maybe losing ounces. Yeah. Fractions of an ounce. Fractions of an ounce in, and throwing in, off way in more matter heat. and throwing off way more heat. So the yeah. conversion is much more efficient. Yeah. Fire, your burning of your log is a chemical reaction that actually most of the matter is turning into smoke. Right. right? That's actually particulate going up into the atmosphere. Right. And if you collected yeah. it all and weighed it, it would probably weigh about as much as the log. It would actually end up weighing more because it combined an awful lot of oxygen in the process. Huh. That's interesting. Okay. But so we get back to the real issue around this, which is these once through reactor designs, the one we understand the best, which was ultimately derived by a need to create reactors that would create atomic weaponry. Right. uh, Aren't terribly efficient. Now, there are nuclear reprocessing facilities. So this is, we could take those rods and then reprocess them back into usable material again and run them again. And a number of iterations like that, we can, we can use up a lot more of nuclear waste. The problem is that while, I mean, especially in light water reactors, the most common kinds of reactors, the byproduct that you make when you do that is plutonium 239. Now, every all these radioactives we're talking about are pretty bad. Like right? this is yeah. not nice stuff. You don't want to be around this. Don't wear it like a necklace. Right. right? But plutonium two thirty nine is in its own league. This stuff is toxic one part per billion. It's some of the evilest shit you can get. And this is the stuff that weapons are made from. That's right. And this this is the the best compound we know to make high powered thermal nuclear weapons. So is this why we don't reprocess those uh, our our waste? Because you're, you're we exactly right. Because we have treaties that uh, prevent us from building weapons grade plutonium. Yep. So in 1977, it was actually Jimmy Carter who shut down reprocessing as a part of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. And as a result, we're stuck with a lot more nuclear waste, but yes. we're, at least we're not creating plutonium and threatening yes. the world. Well, and, and actually, Reagan lifted the ban about four years later, but at that point, the industry had shut down, and it cost so much money to light up the reprocessing facilities again that nobody's willing to do it. Because the other problem here is that we found a lot more uranium, and uranium became very cheap. All right. So how do you explain TerraPower? TerraPower.com. This is uh, this is a company Bill Gates has invested in, actually, and they have what's called a traveling wave reactor, and they they're they're saying that it's a path to zero emission proliferation resistant energy that produces right. significantly smaller amounts of nuclear waste than conventional nuclear reactors, and uh, they they essentially use depleted uranium. They, they say the innovative reactor design can run for uh, for decades on depleted uranium, currently a waste byproduct. So they must have figured out how to, um, it, I don't know, maybe include the, the, the plutonium that gets created from the depleted uranium. And, so first off, what process. is depleted uranium? Have no idea. So depleted uranium is the is the uranium two thirty eight left over when you've done all you've done all the extraction of two thirty five. Okay, 
Okay, so there's no, that that one three quarters of a percent of two thirty five has been pulled out. Mm-hmm. That's depleted uranium. Okay, and we know it's in typical reactor designs, it's not fissionable, right? It, it's not fissile. It's right. fissionable, but not fissile. So traveling re, uh, traveling wave reactors are a concept of using much more dense neutron patterns to burn fuel more thoroughly. It's a great idea that nobody's actually made work. Hmm. Okay, this is all research at this point. We have an idea, you know, actually keeping it stably running and scaling it is the problem. Hmm. So the first nuclear power plants that really, really worked were built by the U.S. Navy because they wanted them in the submarines. Yeah. And it turns out that 60 megawatt reactors are super stable and super safe. They work mm. while there it has been a few naval accidents, very very few. Yeah. The design is quite polished, it is very well maintained. One of the side effects of the military is they have a lot of discipline around those things. Right. But the reality is that small nuclear reactors are far safer because they're small. They're easy to shut down. They don't have the same kind of heat problems. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Right. And now all of the issues, like we talk about the three big nuclear disasters. So you talk about Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima. They all have the same core issue, which is we couldn't cool it down. It was too hot. Even though we'd, we'd already shut down the reactor. They call it scramming the reactor. They drop the carbon rods or the graphite rods. They've done everything to actually cool it down. Even when you've scrammed a reactor, it takes days to cool it down. Yeah. When you get it up to that size, it just takes a long time to actually cool things down. So you're down. saying it's if we all size. had little personal uh, re- reactors powering our homes, they'd be safe? Safer. They yeah. still have to take care of it. Right. Right? I mean, it does take care and feeding to make to keep a reactor reliable. Do you see that um, happening? We, there's, what's that? Do you see that happening? Do you see us having personal nuclear reactors in our buildings and houses? What's the downside of that? Um, the downside is the proliferation of radioactive materials. Yeah. And I don't, and combine that with a society that has just decided that, you know, radiation is scary. It's right. invisible and it kills you. Right. What could get scarier than that? Right. So I don't think we're ultimately going to go there. Uh, and we, but there are other cures, There's other things we can go along here. I don't think nuclear power is ever going to go away. I think mm. we can get better at mm-hmm. it. There's other things that we can do here, but it's not a simple process. The reality is that uranium is not a good product, actually, for making power. It's only it's just the product we know how to use. Yeah. We can't underestimate the value of the processing chain we have. We know how to mine it. We know how to ship it. We know how to make it into fuel rods. We know how to run those power plants and, we, and, and deal with the waste, more or less. We don't really have a good solution to the waste. We could get better at that. All right. So let's talk about some more innovative reactor designs that have happened since, you know, since the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, 50s, 60s really... The fifties was your, your old generation one. Generation two, the most of the commercial reactors are based on that. They're light water, heavy water reactors. Sometimes they're used in combination with breeder reactors. So there's this the idea that we would have a reprocessing facility, a breeder reactor, and a heavy water reactor all in the same plant. Mm. So that you can you can take your basic raw ore, process it into a very simple fuel rod, run it in the breeder reactor to amp up its quality, then run it in the heavy water reactor, then reprocess the fuel and cycle it around again a few times so that you actually can consume the waste. And that would be fine if we weren't creating uh, plutonium in the process. Right. 
So one of the things that's come along now is a new process called the MOX process, which actually allows us to feed plutonium into the fuel rods so that we can consume it as well. Nice. So then you would take the, the plutonium that's the byproduct of the reprocessing, add that to the mix, and now you can sustain it for a lot longer. You can, well, you, you end up with a, a f- leftovers that are far less radioactive and less total mass. You're keeping pulling out the useful ingredients. But understand that that processing process isn't cheap. It costs money. And electricity is cheap as it is and uranium is cheap as it is. Why would I reprocess fuel when I can buy uranium so cheaply? Well, the whole idea of reprocessing fuel is for safety, right? Because we don't want to mm-hmm. actually just put this stuff in the ground and leave it there. And let it sit. You're exactly right. But now we get back to the fundamental conflict of interest around this, where Mm. if power generation is a business, profitability is more important than safety. Yeah. Right. Right? And if I could buy uranium cheaply, why would I spend more money reprocessing my waste? Just what what are we going to do with that pesky waste? (laughs) Just a detail. And there's lots of interesting designs (laughs) coming along now to try and consume more of that waste. All right. So enriching uranium has been in the news, of course, because- Um, you know, uh, Iran has been enriching uranium and they claim it's for peaceful purposes, for power purposes. Yep. Is there a different, how do we know that they're building weapons? Is there a difference in the uranium that you enrich the enrichment level for weapons as opposed to, uh, uh, power plants? Well, so I, and I mentioned this before, right? Normal natural uranium that you dig out of the ground is, uh, only a, one quarter uh, or three quarters of a percent U-235, which is the fissile uranium. That's the dangerous stuff, right? right? It's mostly 238, which is much safer. To make reactor-grade uranium, so the stuff you actually want to use in reactors, you need to get the 235 percentage from three quarters of a percent up to about 4%. Okay. Okay. To make weapons-grade uranium, you need to get it to 90%. Wait now, a minute. Problem here 4% is that versus 90%? 4% versus 90%. Okay. And what do we so know that- a big what, difference. What do we know that the Iranians are doing? We don't. What we know is the problem is that enrichment is enrichment. Right. It's a question of how long you run it. Yeah. I get right? it. So there's really no way to know. It's the same Without process. actually looking at the, the end product, there's no way to know. No. Yeah. Okay. And- and that's the issue, right? Is that you, if you're able to enrich uranium at all, you can enrich it to whatever you want. It just takes more time. Right. Right. And there, and these days we don't tend to do enrichment through centrifuge. We do enrichment via breeder reactors. Right. Okay. Although we've stopped doing that because we don't want more highly enriched uranium around. We don't right. need more weapons. Right. We have enough. We're trying to get rid of the weapons. Right. And it's one of the reasons that the MOX fuel cycles come along as a way to take highly rich uranium and plutonium and use it as part of a, re- of a fuel cycle. Right. And are those MOX reactors legal under the current treaties? Um, well, the, the reality, of course, is that MOX is, is uh, you know, still new, right? This is all part of the research process. So there's really nobody actually using these yet. But they're talking huh. about... Let's get the mocks. You know, there was billions of dollars poured into developing the re- the fuel chain that we have today with mm. uranium to build light water and heavy water reactors. Right. Billions and billions of dollars. And we just haven't spent the money on other reactor designs and other fuel designs mm. to actually know how to make them work. 
What do, what do you think about Terra Power's possibility? I know that you say that they're they've only been you know on paper so far, but what do you it, think? Uh, I mean, you know, Bill's putting money into it. That's good good sign, isn't it? Yeah, but I'd like to see government. I mean, Bill's rich, but the U.S. government's way richer. Mm. Spending money on being able to build a nuclear power plant that would consume waste and and weapons grades is a good idea. Mm. And MOX fuels one way. I mean, one of the advantages of the MOX fuel concept is you could run it in existing reactors. We're mm. a traveling rave reactor. Not only are we doing a different fuel cycle, we're also a entirely different reactor. Design. Right. It would be great if we could use the power plants that we have in just a different yeah. process. Yeah, I agree. You know. That that's a very compelling idea, and that leads us to technologies like thorium. Thorium. What's thorium? So thorium has an atomic weight of two thirty two, right? So Slightly it's just lighter. a little bit lighter than uranium, and it's about five times more plentiful as uranium. There's lots of it around. Well, it's good. not in the same places as uranium. Like primary uranium sources today, Australia and Canada. Huh. Okay, where thorium's found in massive concentrations in places like India. Huh. But there is a, a again, only experimental f- stages of thorium reactor designs. A more prevalent material, but it has a fission chain that looks remarkably similar to the uranium plutonium chain. Hmm. Where when a, uh, where a neutron is added to thorium, it actually becomes uh, 233. It goes up to that heavier weight and it will release two neutrons and, and you can create that same K cycle the hmm. same way. But there's more of it and there's a bunch of different ways to react it. Hmm. So, uh, most exciting to me in, in recent news is that the Swedes are actually building, uh, Sweden and Norway are working together to build a thorium reactor, but they're using existing light water reactor designs and they're using it in combination with plutonium. So they're saying we want to use up, we combine thorium with plutonium because plutonium actually is that fissile material that'll keep the thorium burning mm-hmm. in existing reactor designs. And in the process, it'll consume that highly enriched weapons grade, uh, radioactive. So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So, is the only upside to thorium the fact that it's more plentiful? Or are there other upsides, too? There are other thorium cycles. So that one thor that that cycle with plutonium is one design. But another fuel, uh, another cycle gets into these higher generation reactors. So I, you know, I've, you know, generation one was really the prototype reactors. Generation two is sort of the original commercial reactors. For the most part, generation three is just more advanced versions of generation two reactors, okay. where we've really dealt with these things like uh, uh, positive void coefficients. 
So this idea that when nothing runs, the reactor naturally cools down. The, la- the, the latest generation can-do reactors, even the latest generation of the Fukushima reactors, are, na- are passively cooling. That's why they call them Gen 3s. Mm. The problem is that Fukushima, they'd never upgraded the reactors to that design that would have cooled itself down. Uh. And when the tsunami wiped out their generators, they overheated because they didn't have, they can keep pumping the water. They'd right. scram the gener, the, the, uh, the reactors. They, they shut down 90% of the heat, but that residual 10%, they needed to run the pumps for another week and the tsunami wiped out the, the generation for them. And they pumped in seawater, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they did have to find, find a pump. They didn't pump it in at time. They actually, you know, the real sin of Fukushima is that they hesitated to pump seawater into the reactors that could have kept them stable. Yeah. Because they knew if they did that, they destroyed the reactor. Yep. It's a one-way trip once you pump seawater. And it wasn't until the Japanese government insisted, do it, that they pumped the, the seawater in. By then, it was already too late. Yeah. And then the, the worst part is... At that point, the reacting, the, those fuel rods had started to melt. And that's where the hydrogen explosions came from, mm-hmm. was that they actually built a, the byproduct of overheated rods is they release hydrogen gas. That hydrogen gas is not radioactive, but, but the, it's hydrogen the, gas, a, highly explosive. So it, it explodes. Yeah. And the damage to the rods meant that the seawater got contaminated with radioactive rods and they had to put the seawater somewhere. So mm. they pumped it back into the sea. Yeah. Not good. No, and so they were pumping fresh seawater in to keep it cool, and pumping, uh, and and pumping radioactive seawater back out. I mean, it's it's almost as bad an event as Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a fire, but they had everything else. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want right. to focus only on the bad news here because there, you know, it's an awful lot of good news. When you get when you start looking at other thorium reactor designs, you get into some of these Generation Four designs, and that's where we start talking about different styles of reactors, like Pebble like, Bed. Like pebble bed reactors. Now, pebble bed reactors are a really cool idea. It says, instead of making fuel rods, make fuel balls. Yeah. And they're about the size of a tennis ball. And they're, again, they're multiple layers because you need that moderator to slow down the rate of reaction. You just can't slam a bunch of uranium together and have a controlled reaction. So, there's some so sort of ceramic uh, around it and around the uranium? Right. Or whatever Which it is, is you're not using. that different from a fuel rod, right? Fuel rods have coatings as well. But the interesting thing when it's a ball is as it gets too hot, it actually expands. The ball gets a bit bigger which pushes the radioactives away from each other and cools it back down passively. Nice. So you get back to that and what they call negative void coefficient where given no action at all, it will still maintain a stable temperature. Now, the other big strength on the pebble bed reactor is there's it's not a once-through fuel cycle. You know, the silly part about the way nu- current nuclear reactors work is that you put together this pack of rods, you stick it in water, you let it boil for six months, then you have to shut it down, mm. take them out, get a new set of rods, and put them in. And, and then, it takes days. And then store those rods somewhere for me- right. millions of years. Well. For a certain length of time, you know, we can get into to half-life decays. They're complex. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it make more sense to be able to steadily add new fuel while removing old fuel and never turn the reactor off? Well, yeah. Right? Get rid of that whole shutdown cycle. And so, one of the things that pebble beds offer is this idea of we have all these balls and they're moving. They pass through a chamber. They're heating up helium. 
So the, it's it's a gas cycle reactor design. So they're using gas to do the the moderation. What's the great thing about helium? So instead of water, they're using helium because right, it doesn't become radioactive. It's inert. It's totally inert, but it yeah. can get and it can get very hot. They can mm-hmm. run at extremely high temperatures so that they can boil water. It's still with a heat exchanger quite efficiently, and they can burn the fuel for a lot longer. There's such a narrow band that rod-based once-through reactors can run in that you can't run the fuel for very long. It has to stay in very good shape before you have to change it out. With the pebble bed design, we could run it for longer. Well, gee, pebble bed sounds like the answer to our dreams. What's wrong with it? Uh, it turns out it's very expensive to make the balls. Mm-hmm. Also, you need to keep them moving so you can take the old ones out and put the new ones in. Mm-hmm. And that process rubs them together, which creates this very nasty graphite dust that can escape, is highly radioactive, and eventually damages the balls enough that they behave differently in the reactor. And mm. uh, they, it's just... The, the South Africans got the furthest with this design and eventually had to abandon it. It has problems. It's not easy. So even if you make the balls uh, outer shell out of something that doesn't, I don't know, flake like titanium or something, is that possible? Well, you you, you can't use titanium because it's a neutron blocker. Right. You have to use gra- – you need graphite and, and nibonium. And there's a bunch of interesting materials. It's very – the layers are very specific. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's try another design. Let's talk about molten salt design. So this is currently the hippest thorium design. Molten salt? Yes. Okay. So I'm, I take thorium and I combine it with fluorine to create thorium hexafluoride. It's a salt. It's liquid at, and, but it maintains its state at very high temperatures. Now, what's the advantage of having this thing as a liquid? Well, the first is it's easier to pump around. It's easy to move around. It has a lot. It's easy to, to do heat exchange with it. But the biggest thing is that it's got an incredibly reliable passive neutralization process. So I create a chamber that the thorium salts live in. And at the bottom of that chamber, I have a salt plug. So literally sodium chloride plug that keeps the chamber sealed. And that plug melts at about 900 degrees Celsius. Huh. When it melts, that causes the rea- the radioactive fluid, right, that molten salt, mm-hmm. to drain into a containment vessel that has moderators in it. So it's full of graphite rods that will stop the nuclear reaction from running. So, you know, imagine the Fukushima scenario. You scram the reactor, coolant stops working, the reactor starts to overheat, and it shuts itself down. And the way it shuts itself down doesn't damage it. You can still pick that salt back up, put put the plug back, put a new plug in, pump that salt back up into the reactor and continue. So this is really the benefit here is safety. It's a na- it's that naturally shutting itself down, continuously running as I as the as the fuel gets used up, I I add new fuel to it, so I don't have to have a shutdown cycle. Mm. It has all these efficiency abilities, and yeah, passively safe. So um, what about waste? Uh, there's still going to be some waste, but because it's a th- it's a salt, it's easier to process. You don't have rods you have to break down, so you you do need to do some reprocessing. There's no byproducts that can become weapons. So okay. because you're using the whole thing about thorium is there's no fuel exchange chain that ends in something like plutonium or enriched uranium. So it doesn't make weapons. So thorium can be reprocessed without creating any kind of weapons grade plutonium or anything. Exactly. 
Huh. That's the ba- its big strength. More plentiful, makes a good salt, which creates a very safe fuel design, can't make weapons from it. So what's the downside of this design? Uh, totally unproven, only research lab levels. Uh, the fluorine is one of the nastiest substances known to man. Right, fluorine. It is very, very, it eats glass for yeah, crying out loud. Evil. We got to make pumps and pipes and containment vessels that this thing can use huh. that are going to last over time. Uh, it, it, it's combustant with air. Like it's just, and it's incredibly toxic. So, you know, nothing's free here. We need billions in research to figure out if we can make this stuff and scale it in a way that it can actually make reasonable power plants that we can operate reliably. Nuclear fusion ever going to happen? It's one of those 20-year-away technologies. Always 20 years away, though, right? Always 20 years away. And it's uh, probably deserving of its own show. There's lots of different species of nuclear fusion out there, but... It, uh, we're all, we're continuing to experiment with it. It is very, very hard things to sustain. Uh, you know what's going to help nuclear fusion a lot? The Higgs what? boson. Well, now they're 99.9999999999% certain that they found it. Yes. And as we start to understand what the Higgs boson does, one of the big challenges around making nuclear fusion is creating great magnetic containment bottles. And we need to understand more of the relationship between magnetism and gravity. And the Higgs boson seems to be key to all of that. So physics is still teaching us the core things we're going to need to make any of that stuff possible. Well, I know that there has been, you know, um, claims of cold fusion in the past and you know, this is the sort of the holy grail. We'll do another show on, on fusion. Yeah, fusion's worth its own conversation. Yeah, and there's been some stuff in the news about it lately, too, so. Sure. Well, yeah. everybody wants to give us free, unlimited power. It would be a great thing. It would change the world, without a doubt. But in the meantime, we've got to keep the lights on. How does the Higgs boson get us closer to fusion? Well, the more we understand about the relationship between magnetics and gravity, the better we get at building magnetic bottles and containment facilities for things like fusion. And the Higgs boson seems to hold the key to an awful lot of that behavior. Isn't there a fusion reactor that's being built in Japan, I think, with uh, a that's a, a huge uh, magnetic field that is containing it? Yep. There's a few under construction. The ignition yeah. facility in the U.S., there's a one in, in Europe, there's one in Japan. Yeah. They're all at the research level, the same way in the 1950s that the Chicago pile... And uh, those research reactors experimented with fission. There's still experiments going on with fusion. So getting back to fusion, what's your favorite right now in terms of if you had to bet on a horse, uh, what, what's your what's your hopeful favorite reactor design? Well, Tokamaks come closest to uh, zero, to actually as much energy came out of it as went in. Tokamak. The funny part is we really don't know how to collect that energy. Is Tokamak the fusion reactor? It's one of them. It's one design. It's a, a toroidal reactor. But what about... Mixed like a big donut. But what about fission? What about plain old fission reactor designs? Fission reactor designs? Uh, you know, I have a... I think if we poured money... I, I, I love what the Swedes are doing, starting to get thorium into the fuel chain and starting to work with it more, mm. because that's actually going to mature the extraction and processing of thorium. And that, I think, leads us to being able to experiment with molten salt reactors and start heading down that path. Mm. Uh, 
You know, the Germans after Fukushima decided they were going to get off nuclear power by 2022. Right. And, you know, the reality is they've largely done that by buying power from the French. Which is nuclear. Uh, <laughs> they use nuclear power. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, everybody would like to use nothing but renewable renewable power sources as long as the lights stay on. Right. And, uh, it, you know, you, you can't build enough solar cells. Right. And you can't build enough windmills to make this work. We need other power sources still. We just need to do them better. And right. I do believe that if we if we moved away from these early Gen 2, even Gen 3 designs and into experimenting and developing more advanced, safer reactors, we could continue down this path for a long time. Yeah. And I think the key is going to be the repurposing of spent fuel and the regeneration yep. of fuel. I love the idea that those huge ponds of, quote, nuclear waste sitting at each one of those reactor sites, actually a fuel source. Right. That would be great. That they could build a reactor there that would consume that stuff in the process, make more electricity, and clean up their own mess. That's exactly what we need to do. And if we can, uh, uh, you know, keep from making plutonium and getting that in the hands of nasty people, then that'd be great. So much the better. Well, Richard, it's been enlightening. Thank you. Always fun to do a geek out, my friend. All right. We'll look forward to the fusion show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And by all means, uh, write some comments on the website about this show and any of the geek outs. We read them all and we will uh, act on your requests. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, PluralPsych.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. PearlSite.com .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time.